We discovered that there were secrets that your body was trying to tell you that could really help you optimize performance. But no one could monitor those things. And that's when we set out to build the technology that we thought could really change the world. Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. At Whoop, we measure the body 24-7 and provide analytics to our members to help improve performance. This includes strain, recovery, and sleep. Our clients range from the best professional athletes in the world to Navy SEALs to fitness enthusiasts to Fortune 500 CEOs and executives. The common thread among Whoop members is a passion to improve. What does it take to optimize performance for athletes, for humans, really anyone? We're launching a podcast to dig deeper. We'll interview experts and industry leaders across sports, data, technology, physiology, athletic achievement, you name it. My hope is that you'll leave these conversations with some new ideas and a greater passion for performance. With that in mind, I welcome you to the WHOOP podcast. I just had this really strong feeling that I was never really going to feel that sense of peace that I was looking for, that sense of happiness that I was looking for, if I just continued to, to study from a book. So I, I put down the, the meditation books and the sports science books, and I, um, I, I quit uni and, and headed off to the Himalayas instead. Today I'm talking to Andy Puttacombe, co-founder of the wildly popular meditation app Headspace, which has over 30 million downloads to date. Andy is just about the last thing you'd expect from someone who started a tech company. He is a Buddhist monk with a degree in circus arts, and his life journey is just fascinating. This is a guy who, as a young man, was a little bit lost and someone who went out quite a bit. And, And then next thing you knew, he was spending 10 years becoming a Buddhist monk. And when he returned back to the UK, he met his partner, Rich Pearson, and he created Headspace, which if any of you have downloaded, you're definitely going to recognize Andy's voice because he's the voice of Headspace and and guided meditation. We also talk about how he uses Whoop to think about his own health and the many things he does to optimize performance every day. If you're someone who meditates, this is a must listen. If you're someone who doesn't meditate, this may convince you to give it a shot. And, and I think that's a great thing for anyone. So without further ado, here's Andy and his WorldCast voice. Andy, thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure. It's good to meet you, Will. So we are sitting here in your Venice studio. It looks like a space that you've spent a lot of time and been yeah. <laughs> really refined over the years. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but I thought I would I'd first start just by asking you, you know, how did you get into starting Headspace? Yeah, when I look back at that whole journey, I kind of see that there's a few kind of points uh, along along the road, you know. There's, there's getting introduced to, to meditation at a really young age, uh, sort of 10 or 11 years old, and doing that kind of growing up. Um, obviously, there was going away and becoming a Buddhist monk. I say obviously, but, you know, <laughs> having, having, having done that and training for, for all those years. And then I think there was the realization of there are a lot of people out there who are looking for ways to to cope in life, not just cope in terms of struggling with stress and sleep and that kind of things, but also to sort of optimize life as well and not necessarily having the tools and the skills 
So I think going back to back to the UK and meeting my co-founder, Rich Pearson, uh, about 10, 11 years ago now, that was the significant kind of shift that ended up us both going on this, this journey of Headspace. Well, we'll come back to it. I think it's amazing what you guys have built, and uh, you should be so proud of it. And I personally think meditation is incredibly important. Like, it's something that I've introduced in my life really changed my life. I think it's a superpower. And for anyone who's, who's listening who sort of isn't sure if meditation's right for them, I highly, highly recommend it. And for you, you got into it at a young age. So h- how did that happen? Yeah, it was, it was with my mom. You know, mom was, you know, she's pretty progressive. Still now, she's still kind of, she has this thing that she was always a little too early with things. And um, <laughs> I, I still think that's okay. She's in her mid-70s. She's still working full-time. She was like therapy and stuff. But even growing up, we had a, a sensory deprivation tank in our in our garage. Like She was running like therapy clinics and things. She started going to meditation classes when I was about 10 years old. And I just went along with her. And it had a real... It sounds strange because it wasn't... I was living... A very normal ten-year-old life. Like we weren't, you know, like a crazy family. Or anything, you know? <laughs> um, it wasn't sort of the center of a cult or anything. It was. I was doing normal things, and I was playing rugby and football and tennis and basketball, and you know, I was super sporty. But I need. I really felt like I needed that grounding in in my life, even at that age. And I found that meditation, for whatever reason gave me that opportunity to step back from you know the stuff that was going on in my life and the emotional pressures of growing up and just kind of give me a greater sense of of calm and what was your meditation practice then so i started off with tm actually so transcendental meditation so i did 20 minutes in the morning 20 minutes in the evening um and that was that's what i do oh you do Yeah, yeah yeah i like it yeah yeah i found it i found it really i found it really helpful what I discovered kind of over time, um, and I think it's such a personal kind of journey and different things, different approaches are going to resonate with, with different people. On that journey, I just discovered some other sort of techniques and uh, sort of philosophies, I guess, some broader philosophies um, that I found really sort of captivating and engaging. And yeah, as I say, that eventually led to me going down the, the path of becoming a Buddhist monk. Now, was it obvious that you were going to become a Buddhist monk, or did you have sort of this tipping point moment? It was in no way obvious. Okay. Um, so, to give some context, I was I was at university. I was studying uh, sports science. I was working as a personal trainer. I had a, a girlfriend. There were none. There was none of the so foundations pointing towards Buddhist nothing monk at this right stage. Now. Nothing is pointing towards Buddhist monk. Yeah. I was also still competing in in gymnastics, so very sort of physical. Um, and I was going out drinking a lot as well. So, yeah, you wouldn't have thought it. And then I think I just hit, it's probably about halfway through my degree. I was probably about a year and a half in. Just kind of hit a real point. Um, How old were you at this time? I was 22. Okay. Um, so I, I'd gone to university a little bit late. I took three years to go traveling uh, before before I even thought about going <laughs> so back. So you studying. were always adventurous. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And... Um, I just hit a point where I just felt that I was quite regularly overwhelmed in my mind. Um, I'd gone through some stuff in my late teens, been involved in a car accident where some some people had died. My stepsister had died as well. In uh, yeah, I read yeah, about so, that. You had this like really brutal. Yeah, year it was of just a life, tough, right? a really tough year, and and I I had dealt with it to the extent of 
sort of getting by, but I'd never really kind of sat with that stuff and got comfortable with it or as comfortable as you can. And I just I just had this really strong feeling that I was never really going to feel that sense of peace that I was looking for, that sense of happiness that I was looking for if I just continued to, to study from a book. And at some stage, I had to kind of take that next leap. So I, I put down the, the meditation books and the sports science books, and I, um, I, I quit uni and, and headed off to the Himalayas instead. And how did you decide the Himalayas were the right place even to go? So, <laughs> like, is there a becoming a Buddhist monk yeah. manual? Or <laughs> I wish there was. There should be. Maybe, maybe there's a market there. Yeah. Do you know, I was actually heading for Thailand, and the girl that I was going out with at the time, lovely girl, and she was really into sort of Buddhism. And probably about three months before, it was clear that obviously we were going to break up, and I was going to go away. And but we were chatting about sort of where I was going to go. And um, a friend of hers had just come back from Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama lives, and was saying how amazing it was. And I kind of thought, well, at, at this stage, I mean, it was a pretty loose plan. I just knew I wanted to become a monk. Right. I was going to go to, I was going to fly to Bangkok, and then I heard about this. I was like, nah, actually, I'll go there. So I, I flew out to India, and um, I started my journey in in northern India, up in the foothills of the Himalayas, where the Dalai Lama lives. Wow. So you you land in India. Yeah. And at this point, do you have like a lot of possessions with you? I feel like the whole mindset is you don't need anything. You just yeah, you're I mean, about to become this new yeah, <laughs> this new person, right? Yeah, it's a it's a very strange thing because obviously this is this is before, and it's really hard now, isn't it, to even remember that time. This was before sort of the internet and being able to just Google what do yeah, I need to yeah, become yeah, a yeah, Buddhist yeah. monk and totally. do I need to take anything and. Um, there was the Lonely Planet kind of guidebook, but that was about it. So I took, I probably went off with fairly standard sort of backpacking kind of gear. Nothing there that was particularly valuable and everything that I was happy to kind of give up. Um, but it was probably a little bit later kind of on my journey on, so you train to become a, a monk. Right. Versus a lay person and as a novice monk. And there's a stage in which you kind of give up your your worldly belongings, as they say. So there was a time where I kind of had to give give up every, or I chose to give up everything, right? Um, sort of clothes and yeah, every, all all my possessions. So what is that first week or first month like? And at any point during that, where you're like, okay, I may have I may have over yeah. this, like I may have gone too far. <laughs> yeah, most days. Um, yeah, I, thought, I bet it's really hard. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. There is definitely it's a uh, I, and I get the impression from other people I've spoken to, friends um, who've gone down this route. There's a kind of there is an initial kind of high, which is. It's essentially the honeymoon period. You've arrived there. You feel like you've shed all the kind of you right, know right, stuff right. from your past, and yeah. oh, it's so nice just to be able to sit in silence. And then it's kind of like, ooh, this is actually pretty hard, and my knees hurt, and I don't know if I really it's a bit boring sometimes, and and I think inevitably sitting with oneself is is quite challenging. So and and what were you doing on a daily basis? So at that stage, I was just doing retreat. So I was meditating um, from morning till evening, and That's um, it was probably I could have probably found a slightly less steep on ramp 
Um, I, I think in retrospect, I would have gone into it slightly differently. Yeah. Um, but I was, yeah, I was a little gung ho and I kind of was, was all in right from the, the beginning. And I, good for you. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. Really? Had, had you ever done one of those meditation retreats where at that stage I hadn't. Okay. So, so be... this was really yeah. like zero to a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And people ask me kind of often now sort of, you know, they want to do retreats or they want to be, you know, sometimes even they want to become monks and nuns, you know, yeah, what, should wow. I, yeah. what should I do? And and I say, well, first kind of establish a daily practice, maybe just sort of, you know, even if it is just 10, minutes. Oh, people minutes. want to become monks before they oh, get a meditation for practice. For sure. You know, people get excited about stuff, you know. And, um, and then pretty gung-ho. Yeah, yeah it's pretty gung-ho. And then people <laughs> are like, well, should I, should I do one of those 10-day retreats? And I'm like, well, maybe just start with a weekend, you know, and see how that goes. And then maybe do a five-day, then do a 10-day and build up slowly. I feel like that's the sane way to to approach it. Now, as you're going from meditating, because before you became, you, you went down the process of becoming a monk, you're meditating yep. in the morning, in the evening primarily? Uh, yeah, when I was a late, late person. So maybe yeah. 40 minutes a day. Yeah, I was probably doing somewhere between half an hour and an hour a day, yeah. And now, uh, you're at this period in your life, you're doing, what, call it 14 hours, 18 hours as much? Yeah, it, it really varied, and it's I would never suggested i was doing that for the whole 10 years i was away um so sometimes in the monastery you're in retreat and sometimes you're not when you're not you could be doing anything like sort of four to eight hours a day maybe it depends on the monastery and the the focus of the monastery but when you're in retreat when you're in sort of if you go into like a year-long retreat or something then yeah you're doing anything between 14 and 18 hours of meditation a day so did you start in the retreat? Yeah, so I first went and I did some short retreats. So I started off with a month and then I did three months. Um, and then I realized that actually I needed to dial that back a little bit. And I went to a monastery where I was more involved in the community and learning the philosophy and psychology um, and not doing quite as much meditation. And then slowly I built back up to a, a place where I was comfortable being in, in longer term retreat and sitting for sort of more more time. So... That 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 transition for your body, I find kind of fascinating, right? Because you go from forty to sixty minutes of meditation a day yeah. to almost, you know, at least fifty percent of the day, you're in some kind of meditative state. Yeah. What did you start to notice about the way your brain was behaving, the way your body was behaving? Yeah, it was the way you looked at the world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to to capture in a way. It was it was quite a tough transit. I think it was. The reason it was tough is so I'd gone from being you're you're a sporty person, yeah, obviously, sure. and and as someone who you know when I left university, I was probably I was training at least twice a day, um, once in the gym, once in the gymnastics kind of hall, and so I was probably training like four hours a day, okay, that's and, yeah, that's and eating maybe you know like five six meals a day, something like that, right. And immediately that got shut off. So there's no no physical exercise. So you must in the have lost a ton of weight at all. I lost a ton of weight, but it was more the energetic system. I feel like we all become habituated to condition to the way we live. Sure. And so suddenly, kind of sitting there, I felt like I might sort of explode. You know, because I was so used to expending that energy, and all of a sudden I was just sitting there on the floor with my eyes closed, completely still. And so. I actually found that was the the hardest kind of part of of the transition. Uh, it probably took a few months, I would say, for the body really to sort of let go of that and to sort of be comfortable. 
mm, so, not expending so that energy. So to not feel that need to exercise exactly. or expend an enormous amount of energy. Exactly. So I really feel like it took a long time to sort of regulate. And again, I was still, like, what, 22, 23 years old. So at that age, the body doesn't necessarily kind of enjoy just sitting still all day long. There's There's a bit of kind of, yeah, transition to happen. But as that became more comfortable, definitely things started to settle down. I started to experience a you know, calm that I'd never experienced in, in my life. Definitely a little more clarity. And I think most important of all, just a greater willingness to sit with the mind as it is. We have a tendency as humans to move away from the mind whenever it gets uncomfortable. So we move to distraction. Right. And in the monastery, there is no distraction. Right. You can't turn around and pick up a magazine or flick through your emails or, or phone someone. You just have to kind of sit with the mind as it is. And that over time creates a, a confidence in just being with oneself as one is in, in each and every moment. Yeah, th- there's something really powerful about what you just said. One of the things that I've found so valuable about meditation is that at least in the first few months when I started doing it, so I've been meditating probably for over four years now yeah i started to see myself in the third person from time to time throughout the day yeah where you know instead of feeling like you couldn't um you you were a step late realizing the state of your emotion right you were a step early yeah so you know all of a sudden i'd hear this little voice in my head say oh will's about to get angry let's see (laughs) let's see what happens here you know and yeah. it, you know, it's sort of teasing myself in a way. Yeah. Uh, or and and it just made me feel so much more aware. Yeah. Of myself and yeah. and that to me feels like like a superpower. And so I've always like thought about it personally. How much deeper does this go? Right. Yeah. Like how much further could I could I take this? And that's why I find what you went through so fascinating. I mean, it sounds like you're asking for an introduction to the monastery, if, if you <laughs> <Yeah>. are. <yeah. laughs> no, I'm not there yet. But no. but I think that, like, that's why I have an enormous amount of respect for what you went through. And I, I feel on some level like you're you're operating at a, a much more powerful level because you've been through this experience. Yeah, or I'm just a very slow learner. And uh, <laughs> it took me that long. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. It's all... It's all relative. I I understand kind of when people sort of why they might think I have a lot of experience. But I look at my teachers and I feel like a complete novice. Like alongside them, like many of them have spent sort of 10, 20 years plus in retreat. Not just it's living amazing, in the monastery, but in retreat, meditating kind of. I mean, it's mind-boggling. They don't even lie down at night time. They sit in, in Lotus at night time and maybe sleep for a couple of hours. I mean, for me, that is mind-boggling. Those well, the, those, those are the people worthy, <laughs> worthy I know, of the, respect. The whoop mindset in me is so interested in what's happening to their body physiologically <laughs> yeah. because they've they've trained their bodies in a way that is so special i think it's just completely unique it'd be amazing to get whoops on them yeah i mean i'd, I'd genuinely be fascinated yeah. to see what I, was... I love looking at populations that are a little extreme a lot of the um i don't know if you've come across it well but a lot of the early fmri studies that were done around sort of meditation were actually done with with fairly experienced monks um people oh, wow. who spent a long time in retreat and they were they were looking obviously more at sort of brain brain activity and and the and neuroplasticity 
and the way in which the sort of brain brain changes through that training. I think that was one of the is one of the the things that has changed the perception of of meditation and mindfulness is that it's not just a psychological sort of shift, but there's a physiological shift, and not just in the chemical markers in our body, but the the brain itself is is experiencing change in the same way as when we go to the gym and train a muscle the brain itself is receiving more blood flow the cortex is getting thicker it's getting stronger in the areas where where we want it to so we we tend to experience kind of more focus or happiness whatever it might be well i, I want to come back to that because we have seen actually a lot of fascinating data on people on whoop who meditate oh, i'd love to of, yeah love to it's really amazing yeah. uh so just back to this this period of your life where you're becoming a monk, I find it so fascinating. What was something or what were things that you learned from these teachers that you feel like were otherworldly? Like these guys were doing things that, you know, yeah. just sounds on some level almost impossible, like to be in retreat for 30 years, right? Yeah, I mean, and at what, the top what was end, it yeah. that, that you felt around them? or When I met people like that, I I just experienced an incredible sense of warmth from right them, and They're, kindness yeah, yeah. and acceptance i just it's really rare in this world to to be in the presence of people where you feel no sense of judgment where you feel they're unconditionally loving and kind and it's amazing isn't it as much interested in your welfare arguably more interested in your welfare than you are yourself you know yeah, like they're, right. they're able to kind of see life in a in a very very different way so i think from them a sense of I learned a sense of humility, um, and perhaps it reorientated what I thought meditation was about. When I when I set off, it was like enlightenment or bust. You know, it was that kind of mindset. <laughs> you know, which is insane, but it's quite typical as well. Um, <laughs> and then over time, it was kind of like, well, actually, maybe it's more about stability of awareness and stability of compassion having an open and a curious mind not being too sort of fixated in one thing or one goal and just being more present moment to moment and and that i think once if you have that as the context and the approach for meditation then all of a sudden there is no pressure there's no kind of trying to to grasp or attain something a particular mind state instead again it's just being at ease with the mind as it is and in understanding one's own mind a little better, hopefully understanding the minds of others and being able to empathize and feel compassion in a way ordinarily we might not always be able to. So interesting. If you were at a social gathering and there was a, a monk there just dressed in normal clothes, like you wouldn't know from appearances that it was a monk, would you be able to recognize that person just by the feel of, of them? So this is the interesting, interesting thing, you know. You don't need to be a monk or a nun to have stability of awareness or compassion. True. I think it's really important. So I know, I know people, I actually know some people who just naturally, they seem to exude these qualities. Which is amazing. Which too. is amazing. Yeah. Like some of us have to go away for many years and, <laughs> and train in them. Um, but some people just seem to have it. Other people kind of, they train on a regular basis and they seem to have it. And others have obviously trained to a much greater extent. I often think about one of my teachers. So he was he did um he did three, four year retreats on the spin. So he did twelve years in retreat. Uh he wasn't a monk. Uh he decided not to be a monk, but he was in the retreat for, for the whole time. So when you're in retreat, 
you live as a monk regardless of whether you've ordained or not. But it means that now kind of he's out and about in the world and he still teaches. But when you walk down the street, um, you there's no way that you'd kind of go, oh, look, that guy over there. Yeah, well, he, he spent 12 years in retreat. For me, that's one of the almost, not one of the draws, but I feel like those people have transcended the idea of what it means to be a a monk or a, a yogi like they've gone they've gone so far beyond it that they are now completely and fully back in the world and unless you know it you don't know it you know it? for me that's a real superpower yeah for people who kind of walk around in you know i meditate t-shirts or whatever it might right, be right, kind right. of it's a bit like well okay that's a that's a label that's an identity and that's a bit of a trip um, but I feel those people who've kind of trained so extensively that they've almost worked their way back into the world. They've almost gone full circle. Right. Yeah. Where they've completely gone, a, sort of come away from the world and then kind of reintegrated. That for me is the real kind of magic. Well, in a lot of ways, you've just described your journey too, right? I mean, you, you've without, done exactly that. Without, with, <laughs> without the... The wisdom of those teachers, but yeah, I mean, I I I went in and I I trained as a you know I did the training and then I I've, in some ways I've come full circle. It's just some people come out the other end, you know, a little wiser than others. What was the experience of being a pupil versus being a teacher? Because you yeah, know, you, became, you ultimately became a monk. Yeah, I I feel like I learn. It, it's a journey of a lifetime. I still think of myself as a student of mindfulness. I don't think of myself as a I mean, it seems I, almost like the mindset that everyone takes on some level, right? Because I think so. I think it's a healthy. Yeah. Kind otherwise, of how do you do thirty years of retreat? You're still searching for it, something, yeah. right? There's actually, uh, and you might be familiar with this. Well, there's an expression in um, in Buddhism, uh, especially in Zen, it's called beginner's mind. Yeah. And there's that idea of just keeping alive this sort of freshness, this idea. You know, when we sit to meditate, it's as though we've we've never done it before. Right. We're curious, we're interested. It's like that first time again. And it's not always easy, by the way. It's tricky. Yeah. It's really difficult. And I, and but it's interesting when I speak to people so obviously working now a lot with, you know, sort of sports people and elite sure. athletes yeah. and it's it's exactly the same thing, you know. If I speak to uh, elite runners, you think kind of, wow, just going out and running for miles and miles every day like for decades, don't you sort of get bored? And it's that same thing. They still go out there every day thinking that there are incremental changes or sure. differences or improvements that they can kind of make in their in their practice. Yeah, I think in sports that's always a fascinating lens because you look at a guy like Tom Brady who's now going to his ninth Super Bowl and he keeps talking about how he feels like he's getting better in certain aspects yeah. of the game. It's mind-blowing. Th- th- there right? might be aspects that only he even realizes that he's getting better at yeah. and no one else can even see. But I think that touches on what you're describing with mindfulness in this beginner's mind. Yeah, I saw um I saw Federer interviewed yeah, uh, right. not not that long ago. And he was talk he was talking about shifts in his game and and the journalists were all just sort of staring at him like, What? But you're yeah. the best tennis player in the world. And I feel like there is there's a level where you go kind of go beyond most people's understanding of of what it means to yeah. to participate in that sport and or or you're just mostly in your own head too like right. it's how you're thinking about certain situations yeah that for me is the tie back to meditation because 
I've I've found since I started meditating, it's changed the way I think about the environment that I'm in. Yeah. And uh, but again, more from the third person. Yeah. I may or may not be behaving differently. Yeah. But it's my acceptance or understanding of the environment that I'm in. And it's an awareness, too, that I think is quite interesting. Like you just become more aware of how what you're doing is affecting people around you. And, yeah. And even like the energies that people are giving off. Yeah. It's interesting. So awareness is often sort of talked about as a as a, a benefit or an outcome of meditation. We often forget, I think, what the alternative is. So if we're not aware, we're unaware, and unaware is really ignorance. Not in a, I don't mean that in a sort of a, a, a negative sure, kind yeah. of sense of ignorance, but in the sense of not knowing. So if we're not aware, we simply don't know what's going on. And most of the time, we don't know what's going on in our own mind, which is yeah. kind of insane because we spend all day with ourselves, but we're so busy, kind of caught up in this maelstrom of thought that we don't see our minds clearly. So having that awareness, being able to sort of pull back and see the mind more clearly allows us to not only think differently or have the opportunity to choose to think differently it also allows us to sort of transcend thought altogether where we're not even involved in the thinking i think which is yeah sort of the the experience you were just talking about yeah it's so interesting and and by the way that awareness that you're describing it can also be distracting too which is which is what makes it you know fun on some level right like you just realize that there's more going on than you yeah. previously conceived and you know, you'll notice that something that you said may have upset someone in the room yeah. that you otherwise previously might not have even noticed, right? Yeah, but the the beautiful thing about that is it gives us the opportunity, right, to, yeah. to then kind of act upon it yeah, exactly. as, as, as and when appropriate. So it can be, I see it as a, if it is a distraction, it's a very, it's a very healthy distraction. Oh, I totally agree. It's just <laughs> you realize that there's these different levels so of much playing, right? Do you know the? I don't know if you experienced this well. I remember sort of starting out with with meditation and going to my teacher and saying, "Oh my god, this meditation is crazy! It's just making me think all the time." You know, I, <laughs> I never experienced this many thoughts before I started meditating, and clearly, like the meditation wasn't making me think. I was just becoming more aware of how many thoughts were in my mind, and I would say over over the years, it was it's almost like layers of an onion. You know, at first you experience all the everyday kind of thinking. And you tend to get involved in thinking about the exercise, thinking about the meditation. It's still thinking, but because it's about the exercise, somehow you justify it in your own mind and you think, oh, well, you know, it's it's still meditation. And you kind of let go of that. And then there's this kind of, you start to experience an, an undercurrent of thoughts and memories, you know, really kind of that you didn't even know. Yeah. Kind of still existed in your mind. And there's this, yeah, sort of increasingly sort of subtle layers of, of thought, I would say. So you're describing effectively these different layers that you were able to uncover through the process. And it sounds like the memory piece of it is the deepest layer. Um, yeah, I, I think I would say that once the, once the mind has experienced its entire kind of past, then there is a, a different level of letting go. So there's letting go of everyday kind of life. Right. But then there's still a sense of kind of holding on to one's identity, everything that we've lived in our life and that makes us who we think we are. And in order to sort of let go of that, we kind of, to some extent, need to experience all those things. 
not get bored of them, but almost they no longer kind of fascinate in the same way. So we're not so attached to them. And as we become less attached to them, we're kind of free of them. That's so interesting. So the moment you officially become a monk. Yeah. Is that from a process standpoint, is that like a, a bit of a surprise where they just tap you one day and you're now you're a monk? Or, no. <laughs> or is it like you passed it, you know, the big test and, and yeah, you, there's a ceremony and everything? And it, it does vary tradition to tradition and, and monastery to monastery. Um, for me, it was quite a, you know, I spoke to my teacher and said, you know, this is this is what I'd like to do. And he said, OK, we should go and see this teacher and ask him for ordination. And I went and you make a commitment for a certain number of number of years. Um, and then at the end of that commitment, it's just quite different. I think in the West, people often have that idea of maybe it's through Catholicism, things sort of once you become a, a monk or a nun, that's it for life. You kind of, right. it's a bit different in the Buddhist tradition. You can, Thailand, you can go in and out of the monastery eight times in your lifetime. In, wow. in the Tibetan tradition, you normally commit for, like, I think it's one year, three years or life. Um, and so at the end of that commitment, you either stop being a monk that day, um, or you, you reordain for another kind of period of time. So it was, um, it's quite a sort of an official, you know, some ritual around it and a small sort of ceremony and, and all of that stuff just kind of helps strengthen the, the resolve and the commitment that you're making. And what does that ceremony look like? Um, so the night before, um, I mean, most people by that stage are novice monks and they've got their head shaved anyway. But if you've got a little bit of hair there, they'll, they'll kind of shave your head for oh, you the, cool. the night before and leave just a tiny, tiny little bit on the top for the for the final for, shave. for the teacher to like cut it off in the, with oh, a pair of scissors cool. in the in the ceremony. And you make some yeah, you just make some commitments. Um, you're essentially signing up to some some values and some guidelines in which you know you're gonna they're guidelines to create a framework that will allow you to to find that stability of awareness and compassion in your life. So less like rules. I mean, there's a rule book, but they're not really rules. They're more sort of guidelines on how to, to live a, a healthy and, and happy life. At least that's my understanding of them. And I would think that in becoming a monk, you kind of already know what those rules are well before that ceremony, right? You've already proven to follow these guidelines. Yeah. So they, they these days, I think back in the, the 60s, you could pretty much just rock up and, yeah, sure, you can be a monk. Come on in. And then they experience sort of the challenge and difficulties of Westerners just showing up and doing that. <laughs> so, so, especially at that time. So, um yeah, I think now sort of you're, you're a, a lay, you train as a lay person, and then once you know they're happy with you and you're happy with them, kind of then you train as a novice monk, and then once you train as a novice, then you take take full ordination. So it does allow everybody involved to be sort of fully on board with the with the journey you've chosen. Wow! And so at that point, you um, you're you're now a monk. Now, how long did you? Um, stay as a monk before returning to the UK? Yeah, so all in all, I was away for, for 10 years. Um, at the end of my last kind of commitment as a as a, as a monk was in the Tibetan tradition. It was for, for three years. At that point, I actually thought that I was going to do it for life. And I remember sitting down with my direct teacher, not the teacher who I was going to ordain with the next day. I sat down on a Sounds very romantic, but on a on a rock kind of overlooking these 
these trees up it in, is the, romantic. in the Himalayas. So it was a it was a big moment, you know. And yeah, sure. You know, he said, you know, what do you think you're going to do? Are you going to go for sort of three years or for for life? And um, I said. <laughs> don't really know what do you think and he said well it's for you to decide you know not not for me what a to healthy decide. what a healthy response yeah <laughs> that's the perfect monk response <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then and and he said look but if you're really not sure you know maybe maybe leave it up to this teacher you know who's ordaining me and i i had a phenomenal amount of trust in this guy you know i for whatever reason i just i was happy for him to decide so in the end i went into that room the next day and I said, I, I don't know, but I'm happy for you to decide. If you think I should take vow for life, I'll do it for life. Wow, isn't that an amazing amount of power to put in someone else's hands? <laughs> Retrospectively, yeah. Um, but I, I felt it. and yeah. I, Well, it, I mean, there's something so healthy about what you just said, to be at a place in life where you're, you have so much peace that, yeah, I could do this for the next three years or forever. Yeah, you know it sounds amazing to say that. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd have been quite so cool with it, you know, yeah. um, down the road. But at that time, it, it just felt like the right thing to do. And and look, retrospectively, I may be grateful that he said, "Well, maybe look, just do another three years and, and, then, let's um, reassess. and then sort of see see yeah. how see how you go then." <clears throat> wow. So okay. So so then after three years, yeah. how did you know it was time to come back? So. At that stage, so I'd gone into retreat. I'd gone into sort of longer, longer term retreat, and then I was in Moscow. So I was teaching. Um, they, I'd gone to one of their centers, one of their meditation centers, to teach in in Moscow. And I was, it was living there in Russia that I, I found that there were. It wasn't. I wasn't in a monastery anymore. I was in a meditation center. So I was the only monk there. So I was essentially kind of living as a monk, but in a in a city. You know. And a lot of people would come along in the evenings. They're just regular people coming from their jobs, some Russian, some expats. More and more, I I could see there was a real demand for people who wanted to meditate, but who didn't necessarily want or weren't comfortable necessarily with me dressed in the, you know, the robes of a a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And at that point, you'd been wearing those robes for 10 years? Not for 10 years, but for... In different monasteries, you wear different kind of outfits. But, oh, sure. But yeah, yeah. I've been I've been wearing kind of different clothes for a long time. And do the outfits <laughs> at all signify your stage of of being a monk, or um, do you get certain garments like as you become more experienced or anything like that? No, mostly mostly they're the same. It's a okay. Just different traditions have different different okay. sort of colors. Sure. Well, it's sort of sports teams or something yeah, okay. like that. Yeah. Got know. it. And um, <laughs> and and I. There were some expats in particular, one in particular, who came along and he was, he's just, he's dear friend kind of now, but his take on it was, you know, look, even at his office, there were people really sort of struggling and he'd love to have me in to do some work with them, but it's really difficult, dressed as a monk and it was an oil company, it was in Russia, kind of, you know, (laughs) and, um, and it really, it really kind of just got me thinking about you know, what I was most passionate about and what I felt most passionate about whilst I had a huge amount of respect for the tradition and the, the cultural kind of lineage of, of meditation. It was it was giving people the tools that would make a, a difference in, in their life. So that sort of, that tilted the, the decision, I guess. And at that point you moved back 
to the UK? I did. So I moved back to the UK um, for a number of a number of reasons. I stayed living in Russia for six months or so, and then I then I moved back to back to the UK. And you were having like some health challenges at that point. Is it? Yeah, I mean, I think talking about cancer. Oh, well, n- not yet, right? Okay. The, yeah, I was going to say that was that was a little bit later. Yeah, it was before it was before you had cancer. I think it was. Well, I'm just reading this from, from yeah. the internet, so you never know about these things. <laughs> this is just research. But um, the challenges of, you know, the lifestyle, effectively, at some point taking its toll and wanting to feel healthier. Yes, yeah, so I, I think... Um, and if that's not true, we can just yeah. forget this moment in time. <laughs> Look, I, I think what is fair to say is that uh, going back to England, that's where kind of my resume takes a slightly more sort of unusual sort of twist. Most most <laughs> most people think that I went, I was a monk, I came back, I set up Headspace, and kind of here we are. I wish I was that young. Right. Um, when I went back to the UK, as a monk, I'd given away everything. So I didn't have, like, anything, you know. And um, I was thinking, how am I going to go back to kind of UK? I didn't have any money. And, and also, as a monk, I spent a lot of time kind of, you know, not being physical and i felt felt really different you know oh gosh and I can't, I, yeah i, can I really wanted to get back into my body and it was a very sort of strange sort of feeling and so when i was living in russia um a friend of mine was training at um, moscow state circus and he was doing a four-year degree there he said look come along meet some of my teachers you know i know you do a lot of acrobatics maybe you know you just find it interesting and i hadn't done it for a long time and so i was keen to to go and i enjoyed it so much uh i decided to send in an audition tape cassette as they were back in those days to a university in london where you could do a degree in circus and what year are we talking roughly so this was in 2002 i think okay and um i went i was at 32 at the time so i was thinking like there's no way that they're gonna because you thought you were probably too old even? i thought i was too old yeah. so everyone going there was sort of 17 18 years old right right so i made this audition tape and i sent it in and thought well look maybe maybe one it provides me with a way to go back to the uk kind of and get some help from the government because there's financing and stuff for older sure. students and also more importantly so sort of just to get back into my body and just kind of reassimilate a little bit because you know I didn't feel like I was that sort of connected maybe, and um, and amazingly I I got into this university degree so I I moved back to London, and during the day I I trained in the circus and in the evenings at weekends I wrote the content that's now now people listen to on on Headspace. Oh my gosh! And so there's a couple other things that are fascinating to me. What like what was it like reacclimating yourself to even paying for things and like wearing normal clothes and also being around people that by the way were not exuding the same energy probably as the all the monks <laughs> you, you probably walked around and just pitied everyone because they uh, you know like I can't imagine if if I was around monks all the time like that yeah. and just experiencing that kind of an energy of positivity that you described it'd probably be weird to I mean it's it's different at the same time. You know, the human mind is the human mind wherever wherever you are in, in the world. Yeah. And, and I think in a way 
there's definitely not a sense of pity because I think once <laughs> once once you've seen your own mind really clearly and you've seen the the craziness and the neurosis, there's no way you could ever pity anyone because you kind of know that ultimately yeah, we're we, all we all we're all there. You yeah, know, we all share that. And yes, through meditation, we can have sort of greater awareness of that. But um, it definitely took some. It took a little bit of time to kind of settle into that. Paying for things wasn't so much fun. I was like, what? "Yeah, right." You pay for it's stuff. Unfortunate. <laughs> no, the one of the it's incredible. The the countries, the Buddhist countries that support that kind of training, it's remarkable. The communities so, yeah. kind of they give to the monasteries, and that allows the monks and the nuns to to train in that way. It's a, an astonishing thing. Okay, so you're 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 practicing in. Uh the circus you're starting to build yeah. back up muscles and yeah did you feel that sort of youthful energy come back to you quickly i did it was a, it was the strangest thing because there was one you're surrounded by by youth i mean i was literally i was like a grandpa at the place you know yeah um they were all so young and um they all seemed to sort of tumble around and flip so easily um and in my mind kind of my body could still do that and although there was, you know, everyone talks about sort of muscle memory, in terms of soft tissue, sure. Like that comes back really, really quickly, and I, I think the body does have that memory. But the the tendons, the ligaments, the cartilage, the, the connective tissue is less forgiving kind of 10 years, 10 years on. So I, I, I did start over, you know, during that course. I, I spent a lot of time in the, in the, physio, in the physio room. And um, had to work really hard to to be able to sort of train in in that way at that age. And they even made me sign a contract saying, "I'm really old. If I get injured, it's my fault, not yeah, yours." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they really, yeah, sure. you know. So it's, it is. It's a young. It's a young person's game. That is for certain. Now, I imagine one of the interesting transitions is how your body would feel at the end of the day because as a monk right especially in retreat you're only sleeping three or four hours a day yeah about like four four hours a night something like that now you're you're in the uk and you're you know training like an athlete again were all of a sudden you sleeping eight hours a night or were you still yeah. like did your body still not need as much sleep no it needed it needed more sleep that's there's, what i would think yes yeah, no no question and i would always you know encourage people to to you know sometimes when people start meditating they're like they they look at those stories of retreat and monastery and they go, oh great i don't have to sleep so much anymore but the reality is if we're living in the world if we're we're living in the busyness of the world our brains are quite active our bodies are often quite active it simply requires more sleep so the monastery is a very particular type of environment and that's why why we need less so yeah i was i was sleeping as much as anyone else, I was sleeping sort of a good sort of seven, seven, eight hours a night. And on the side, you're you're writing up different yeah concepts for Headspace. Yeah, for what so, becomes Headspace? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know even what I was writing for. I would just get up very early in the morning. I'd go to bed very early at night as well, but I'd get up very early in the morning and I would just write. And I would try and kind of give a direction or context to some of the techniques and the teachings that I'd learned. And I just kept writing and I probably wrote for a couple of years, you know, um, until it started to sort of make sense. And I had a sense, OK, this this is the direction I'd like to I'd like to take it in. You know, that's a really interesting background, because I think that I meet a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs 
And I think a lot of people are just, they're trying to have this eureka moment, right? Where an idea comes to them and they start a company the next day, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And I think that, I think a lot of the most um, interesting companies or, you know, breakthrough companies come from just wrestling with problems for a long time in someone's yeah. mind. Yeah. You know, and so maybe to the outside world, it looks like, Headspace was this flash of success overnight. But the reality was that you were sitting on this thing for, you know, decades almost in your mind. And and just the 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 image of you spending two years writing your thoughts down, yeah. I mean that really resonates for me. I remember how much time I spent just at Harvard doing research on physiology, having really no idea what I was doing it for, but I was just really passionate about it. Yeah. And I think there's just a lot to learn from what you just said. I think you're right. I know a lot. I know a lot of people yeah. who are waiting for that eureka, eureka moment. And when I look back at Headspace, you know, for anyone listening who's thinking about starting a company, yeah, right. You know, the, to give it some context, you know, yeah, yes, there was a training kind of as as a monk, and then there was a the couple of years of writing, then there was a couple of years in a clinic, just doing one to one, testing out some of these things, these theories, what worked, what didn't, what people yeah, liked, amazing. what they didn't. Then there was a couple of years of doing events, kind of in rooms of testing out those same things, but now we're sort of three or 400 people at a time to see what worked, what didn't, what people liked, what they didn't like. And then seven, eight years ago, there was a shift to the app. So I mean, it's very organic. It's happened very organically, but it's over a really long period of time. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why you've built something that now hopefully will stand a long period of time, right? It's because you put so much refinement into that, you know, initial launch and that, that concept of what you were really trying to do. Well, hopefully. I know, look, we, we were chatting chatting prior to coming coming into studios today. It's a similar, similar story for you, right? Like this... Whoop, whoop didn't happen overnight. No, yeah, it takes time. It yeah. really does. And you have to, I think you have to wrestle with, I think in a lot of ways, the problems that you're trying to solve and, and the, the customers that you want to use. Yeah. And on some level, I think even starting with smaller markets is helpful. Yeah. Like for us, it was very helpful to be focused on professional athletes, college athletes, teams. Yeah. Because that in itself refined what we were doing for an initial audience. Yeah. And even listening to you, the way you're describing about one-on-one sessions, how can I have yeah. a breakthrough with one person when I'm just sitting in a room with that person? Right. You know, okay, what did I learn from that? Now, how can yeah. I think about scaling that? So at what point along this journey of one-on-one sessions and then events, and you, you'd been writing before that, yeah. at what point did you say, okay, there's a there's a product to build here? So when I was um, doing one-to-one, I... I already realized, okay, there was, I wasn't sure which direction to take it. And I started up writing manuals for, for sort of corporate um, work and kind of is, was this something that I could take into workplaces? And again, this was, this was more, this was like 12 years ago. Um, and I also started writing up manuals that it was almost like teacher training. How could I train people to teach meditation in, in that environment? Um, at that time, neither really kind of excited me. They seemed like kind of the most obvious sort of routes to go. And then I met my co-founder, um, Rich. Um, and Rich, we were introduced by a mutual friend. The mutual friend said, look, Andy's looking for ways to take his uh, experience and practice outside of the, the clinic. 
and uh, Rich had come out. He was a bit bruised from uh, an early start in advertising and marketing. Uh, that whole world of agency, which is right. exhausting. Right. He wanted to learn meditation. We did a skill swap. And after three months of chatting to each other about the potential of it, he's like, we've got to do this. Like, let's, let's work together. And it's awesome. We were both equally excited. Very different skill sets, but very complementary skill sets. And it just made it just made sense. Which I think is another thing that when you look at successful founding teams tends to be tends to be the case. Like uh, John Capilupo, my co-founder, our, our chief technology officer, like had such a deeper technical expertise than I did, and our real overlap was around physiology because his his yeah. father's a professor of physiology. But I think the you know if I had tried to find someone who was a you know, another former athlete who believed in the market and that sort of thing, it, the company wouldn't have gotten off the ground. You know, yeah. I needed that other half to my brain and the same way it sounds like you found with Rich someone who could help yeah. take this to market. There's there's no way that I would have yeah. or could have done this on, on my own. And, you know, Rich came not, he wasn't just from advertising. You know, um, he, he was from creative brand develop, development. So how do you... How do you create a new brand in areas where there's no pre-existing brand? And that basically summed up the situation we were in. There were meditation being around for thousands of years, but most people saw it in a very particular way. There was no real sort of consumer brand in that space that people could relate to or feel passionate about. So it was kind of like, okay, well, how do we how do we go about creating that? And, you know, that's all down to Rich and, and the team, obviously. And did you always know it was going to be an app? No. Because um, there are other distribution methods. I mean, I think you're completely right that you built an app. but We didn't know it was going to be an app. We didn't know it was going to be sort of a, a membership or anything like that. We First time I met Rick, he knew it was going to be an app. First time we ever met, we went out for dinner and he said it should be the Nike Plus of meditation. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I didn't know what an app was. And I said it won't work. Um, let's do events. So... I wrote a few books, we got a book deal, we did events for a few years, and then eventually people coming to the event said, well, it's great, it's inspiring, but what do I do when I go home? So Rich was like, well, why don't you just record a few things, you know, and we'll give them a little disc, they'll take it home and, you know, give them something to do. And once I was in the recording studio, it started to kind of, you know, we saw that it was working for people. We decided to, to make the make the leap. Well, good for you, and I I know that there's uh, millions of people out there who are happy that you did. For our audience who may not be that familiar with Headspace, I'll talk about this in the intro just to kind of set this sure. up. But you know, give them a a little background on what Headspace does and why it's important. Yeah, so look, our our vision for Headspace is to is to improve the health and happiness of the world, and my hope is that's what the the app does. We try to give people the, the tools they need to do that. So for people who aren't familiar with meditation and mindfulness, it shows you, you know, in a really clear, easy, down-to-earth way how to kind of learn those skills and then how to sort of tackle different areas of life that might be more challenging or areas that, as I say, you want to sort of optimize. So we have specific packs within the app that focus on stress and sleep and anxiety as well as productivity and focus. It's like 50, 50 packs in there now. There's lots of one-off kind of content. And more recently, we've added a sleep a sleep channel as well. So very specific exercises for, for falling asleep at night. 
And it's your voice, by the way. And you've got a, you've got a world class voice. I well, give it to you. I'm enjoying <laughs> listening to you through these headphones. I, so. d- I don't know about that, but um, just recently, so we're going through. It's a really interesting time. So in doing sleep, what we didn't want was people to associate my voice with falling asleep. So for some of the sleep casts, we've actually brought in other other voices sure um for for that but for all the meditation stuff at the moment it's it's still it's still my voice but this year we go international we launch in a number of foreign languages so that's been really interesting experience for me listening obviously i couldn't learn all those languages um so it's yeah listening to the same content but delivered by other people in in other languages well, well we'll include something in the show notes about how people can can Big find right. headspace and you know some kind of code uh, for them to use and I, I'm a huge believer in headspace I love what you guys have, have built well, and you. I just think meditation is so important so if you're listening to this and you're thinking about whether or not meditation's right for you I'd say give it a try um, one of the coolest things for me about uh, about founding Whoop is now getting to discover Whoop users who have gotten value out of the product. (laughs) And I was really blown away one day to be reading the Wall Street Journal of all things. And it's an interview with, you know, the founder of Headspace. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking through and it's a screenshot of your, of your phone. And it's, you know, what's on the Buddhist monk's uh, iPhone, which in itself is a funny concept, the Buddhist monk, the iPhone. And what do I see? But a Whoop logo sitting there. And uh, and you said very flattering things about um, about Whoop in that article. So I've been really excited to meet you ever since. And uh, I'd love to hear, you know, how you've you've used the product and gotten value out of it. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm really not just saying this because you're sat here, you know. Both myself and my wife, you know, we are just massive fans of it. We were we were introduced to it probably about I became aware of it probably about three years ago. Um, but got it on my wrist probably about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Um, one of what it was one of your team actually had reached out to Headspace. Um, they'd done some initial research on how um, meditation, mindfulness was impacting HRV. Yep. And um and we started the kind of conversations which have now led to sort of some research um, collaboration. And um, as part of that conversation, they said, you know, would you would you like to try it? And I've always been really skeptical of wearables. I've tried some in the past, many actually, and never really stuck with any of them. So but I said, yeah, look, you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a go. And it coincided with that we've obviously Headspace has been growing like crazy over the last few years. The team's been growing. I've been increasingly busy. We've had two two children in the last four years. And other than some surfing, I had really just sort of stopped training. And I'd got to a stage where I wasn't necessarily kind of happy with how I, I felt in myself physically. And I was really missing that, that physicality. So Whoop actually became sort of my my partner in on that that journey i made a couple of sort of commitments to myself for 2018 which is really unlike me i don't kind of normally make resolutions or anything like that and um and it was it it not only held me accountable it taught me a lot about how i trained how i could train better how i could recover better taught me a lot about my sleep as well uh so genuinely thank you i've i i love it oh that's amazing so for you, 
I I would imagine that you're someone who naturally sleeps well and someone who's you know, I would just think, I mean, I haven't looked at your data, obviously, because <laughs> sure. we don't we don't just dive into users' data. But, yeah. you know, I would think that your your body is, is very adapted, so to speak, because of all the training that you've done with meditation. Is that accurate? I, I think it makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's difficult, right? Because I don't have a, a benchmark of before and after. Sure. Um, Which, by the way, is something we love at Whoop when we can see that, too. Yeah. You know, like you... You take someone. This is what back to the the monk practice. Like yeah. it'd be so interesting to have seen yeah. your data as a twenty two year old who you know had a bit of a party lifestyle from yeah. time to time. Yeah, and then you go, you know, become a monk, and, for, and then in the monastery, just, and then oh back again. Gosh, yeah, so I'd love, I'd love to have that data. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sadly, yeah. sadly, sadly, I don't. But um, I think yeah, as I look at my my data, there's there's a few things. There's um, definitely sort of. You know, we sit around, there's a bunch, there's a group of us kind of that, that all have them. And yeah, right. Every now and again, we'll sit around, not comparing in the sense of, you know, who's got the better kind of results, but just looking at that individuality. To help understand and, yeah, it too, right? And how, how we're all sort of different. And look, I think definitely sort of night times, for me, the really interesting thing is more sleep doesn't equal better rest. Right. Necessarily. Yeah. I would always encourage people to get more sleep because I think there's more chance of having better rest in that time period. But I will quite often have shorter nights where I experience kind of better rest and I might have a longer night where I don't necessarily have the same quality of rest. Um, I think REM sort of for me is it tends to be fairly kind of good if good's the right word. Elevated. I I tend to experience sort of, you know, a reasonable amount of, of REM. Um, and deep sleep in those sleep cycles. Which are the most important periods of sleep. Yeah. Right. Um, obviously, having young kids and a baby in the house, like that's not always the case. But, um, yeah, mostly I, I tend to sort of sleep sort of pretty pretty well. Um, what does your routine look like over the course of the day? So what time do you wake up, roughly? So I, I, um, I get up just before 5. So I, I start, um, I do a, an hour of cardio in the morning at 5 o'clock. Good um, for you. And you haven't meditated at that point yet? At that time, no. Okay. So before having kids, I, meditation was the first thing I do every day. Um, now I know if I don't get out and do that exercise, meditation I can get in now other times in the day. That hour of cardio, if it doesn't happen then, it ain't happening. Yeah, right. So um, I get up, I do do, do that. Um, and then I'll I'll come into the, the studio normally and, and I'll do my meditation. And So you'll do meditation in this room even? or um, yeah. yeah, occasionally. Normally, normally in, in my office upstairs, yeah. but um, and then I'll be. I'll and how be, long will you meditate for? It varies. Um, anything between half an hour and an hour depends what I have have time. And I bet your for. resting heart rate on Whoop gets quite low during that. It it does. Yeah. It does. What what's has surprised me, and you know, maybe this this is maybe going into too much detail, um, but. What surprised me about um, is just the genetic predispositions of some of, of some oh, of this true. data. Yeah, true. So, for example, my I mean, my wife is a crazy athlete. I mean, so she's like super fit, and yeah, um, you know, her resting heart rate will be really, really low. It doesn't matter how hard I train or how long I train for. My resting heart rate will never get close to hers. Sure. Even after a lifetime of meditation, right. even after doing all the cardio. 
I just cannot get it kind of close to to hers, to her daily kind of. And then when I look at HRV, um, you'd think kind of my HRV would, you know, be sort of uh, at a reasonable kind of level. It's very consistent, but it's actually quite consistently kind of low. So I still score a, in the a lot of green, yeah, kind of in terms of re- recovery. But it's not that my HRV, you know, when I look at other people's HRVs, I'm like, wow, how am I even living? You know, <laughs> kind of by comparison, mine's kind of quite low, but it's consistently low. And it's been interesting that even in tra- even in having done the meditation and even in training that regularly, it doesn't necessarily shift. I haven't seen HRV kind of go up, but what it's shown me is that okay, this this is the range in which my body kind of works operates, yeah. and and operates. And if I can if I can ensure that I'm well recovered each day and operating in that green zone, then I don't really kind of think too much about it. Well, you're touching on an important phenomenon about whoop that was always important to me, which is that we need to understand you specifically, right. not necessarily how. Uh, like the raw data, right, yeah. is not as important as the as the feedback, so to speak. Yeah. So you need to understand your baselines versus what we see today. Yeah. Right. So today's information versus the last three days, or the last thirty days, moving averages. That's how Whoop looks at data. It's always what what happened today, or what are we seeing today versus your recent averages, and that's how we give you a recovery score in the morning yeah. that says hey yeah. you're, you're ready to go or your body's uh your body's run down and it's far less important how that heart rate variability compares to your coworker or your teammate or yeah. you know other people your age now it's interesting to look at people get competitive about it but you're right like a lot of it is um genetics and the one of the most important things is can you keep it in that range for a long time. Yeah. Because these things often get worse with age. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're fighting aging, yeah. you'll <laughs> you, you'll stay within that range. So it sounds it's like... very the, diplomatic, Well, Very yeah. diplomatic. No, I, no, I, it's true though, but yeah. it is true. I, I, it's I'm both diplomatic pass- and true. I'm, I'm in the passage <laughs> of aging. I'm not really fighting it, but I, I um, yeah, I think, you know, um, most, of the, most of that group um, that we all, you know, they're 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 ten years younger than me. Yeah, and, there you go. Um, and there is there's, there's some real kind of significant significant differences. So, uh, so you wake up in the morning, you do cardio, you meditate, and yep. then you're kind of diving into work. Yeah, and then I'm into into work. It might be writing. It could be could be emails. Could be recording. Yeah. Um, I travel a lot to give sort of you know whether it's talks and press and things like that. Um, I normally try uh, three days a week at lunchtime. So I try and get in a um, strength training kind of physio type um, session as well. Um, and then, yeah, in the afternoon, I'm back into either either recording or writing or uh, one day a week. I'm just meetings kind of at, at Headspace HQ. So meeting with the different teams uh, on the various projects we're working on. Will you meditate before bed? Occasionally. So it re- this really depends on the rhythm of family life and this is one of for me the one of the biggest takeaways of the monastery is that as much as i encourage people to meditate 
also to be flexible in the way that meditation kind of comes into your life and the situation in which you you live in which one lives so i know some people who kind of say to their kids and their partners when they get home no don't talk to me i'm going to meditate so okay that's that's one way and it works for works for them for me personally i've chosen to have a family i chose to get married um and because of that when I go home, I not only want to, but I feel like it's my responsibility as well to to be with my children, to be with my wife, and to allow the meditation that I've done that day, and to allow that any stability of awareness that I might have to inform and infuse the life in which I'm living. So, rather than having kind of rigid parameters of nope, this is my meditation time, nobody right. speak to me. Right, right, right. Kind of okay. This is this is my life, you know, and kind of. Maybe it's okay just to be present, being with the people that we love. Do your kids meditate or does your wife? My wife does. Um, she didn't for many years. People were really confused. They're like, but she doesn't. Why did you go? How'd <laughs> like, that work out? I'm like, it's amazing. I go home. I don't have to talk about meditation. It's so nice. Kind <laughs> of, we just kind of hang out. Right, right. Um, but she, she does meditate. Um, she started when she was pregnant with our, our first child. Um, kids are one and a half. He's definitely so too early. A little too early. Um, and four and a half. So the four and a half is just learning some sort of basic Breathing stuff now. And, yeah. We have so many members who write in and say they're doing it with their three-year-olds. I'm a little envious. Cause wow. I would, I would love Harley to be doing it. Um, I think, again, there's a... His character, I would say, he's he's very lively, quite energetic. And and I have to do it in person with him. I tried it once with the app, and I, I put it on one night time. He was struggling to go to sleep, and I said, "Why don't you just give me a little kind of exercise to do?" And um, and and I put it. On. He was like, "But," he said, "But Daddy, that's that's you," and I'm like, "Yeah." And he said, "But can I not listen to Peppa Pig? I'd like to listen to Peppa Pig, like some kids' cartoon." And so for him, like the voice. He he can't disassociate. It's just his dad, and right? So, and so, kind of, when we do it, we have to do it sort of lying on the floor, side by side together, and we kind of have it as a as a game rather than using the using the app. You know, I'm trying to balance in my mind right now the fact that I think it's phenomenal that a five year old could learn meditation and carry that yeah. with them for their whole life. And then I'm also thinking about how much I value now meditating having not done it for such a long period of time. Yeah. Because, again, you have this contrast moment where I can even see Whoop data, for example, before I meditated and after. And, yeah. you you know, our companies are doing some research together around this, which is super exciting. Yeah. But my Whoop data is significantly better from meditation. Yeah. And my mind feels better and everything feels better. And so it makes me super appreciative yeah. of meditation. And... You know, it's like, do you need bad to appreciate good? I don't know, but but it's like, a, it, it's a, yeah. It, it makes me so appreciative of meditation. I feel like it's a little bit like brushing one's teeth or having a shower, and maybe you can go like a few days without doing either. But it's so much nicer for oneself and for everyone around us if we brush our teeth and shower on a regular basis. I kind of feel like it's the same thing, kind of. We've never really thought about that very much because we just grew up brushing our teeth and having a shower. We just we got the idea very early on that it's important to be clean and like look after the health of our body. 
we didn't necessarily get the message it was important to look after the health of our mind. So I feel like with kids growing up, that will just become part. I really believe it's already part of curriculums in schools and stuff. I really believe it will just become part of how we how we grow up. Well, I like that association that you created. It's, you know, meditating's as fundamental as taking a shower. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And so one of the one of the things that we're working on uh as companies together is is looking at professional sports teams who introduce Headspace yeah. um and then seeing the response on Whoop. And we won't go specifically into to the teams that we're working sure. with right now and stuff because we haven't we haven't announced all that. But I think it's fascinating just the research that we've seen at Whoop on people who meditate. And you look at um, we've now done you know little white papers and studies on populations where you look at someone who didn't meditate and then introduces any form of mindfulness. And yeah. this could be transcendental meditation. It could even yeah. be you know taking three to five minutes a day a few times throughout the day and just breathing properly. And, you know, you you guys have a lot of different content on Headspace, but it's unbelievable just to see how black and white it is. You know, their resting heart rates are lower, their heart rate variabilities are higher, they're getting more slow wave sleep, they're falling asleep faster. You know, for you in, in, you know, becoming the person carrying meditation through and I think making it a lot more popular, is that just so exciting? It is, it's... And it's it's double it's doubly exciting as someone who grew up passionate about sport and who is still to this day passionate about sport. Yeah, you know, sure. I, it's an amazing coming together of all the things that I love in in yeah, life. Right, you know, right, so yeah. I, it's been um, it's been a dream. We actually started working with um, with professional athletes, with Olympic athletes, uh, before we even had an app. They were sort of coming along to the events prior to London 2012. Um, so we got some really early sort of feedback and I was genuine. I had no idea kind of the impact that it would have on professional athletes. And I was even, if I'm honest, a little surprised at how much sort of impact it, it was having. Wow. So, so to see that kind of evolve over, over the years and now, you know, whether it's partnering with, you know, in Nike and the NBA and these different working with different teams, it's blown me away that one that these teams and leagues are open to to the idea, and more importantly that they're experiencing these you know really really positive results yeah I, I mean i think it's I think it's really fundamental in a lot of ways. I feel like thinking back on my athletic career that I was such a novice for not having at that point incorporated some kind of a meditation or you know we did things briefly around visualization but i don't think i really yeah. understood it because i hadn't also learned how to meditate yeah i think that's a very healthy bridge into visualization is meditation yeah very much so it's really hard to to visualize without having that foundation of yeah you need your mind to be clear in order to exactly. create this world that you're now in right uh, other yeah i feel like otherwise it's a bit like looking at an old-fashioned <laughs> tv set which isn't fully kind of tuned you know it's all just flickering it yeah that's actually a great that's a great the, way the to picture think about but it's just a it's a little bit sort of fuzzy do you so do you visualize it all in your in your daily life or even you know when you're competing in this in the circus i imagine that so it i could have been quite valuable I visualize as part of my, I do visualization as part of my practice, my meditation practice. And definitely when I was working through routines and things in my mind, um, 
sort of acrobatics and that kind of thing i i would i would definitely use use visualization I t- and now even now i might sort of use it for surfing and things like that oh cool i feel like it's not a very um i don't sort of sit down and think right now i'm going to visualize about you know it's not like a formal kind of exercise i think i find myself quite naturally now visualizing those types of things it just drifts in and then you yeah, latch onto it yeah that makes sense and do you see yourself in the third person or the first person when you're visualizing um so in the traditions that that i trained in we're encouraged to see ourselves um so you're visualizing as though not watching yourself outside of yourself it was yeah exactly through one's own eyes through one's own body Uh, and that that creates a very particular type of connection between the mind and the body because all of a sudden then you're you're actually you're living it in your own body rather than simply mentally seeing yourself as another person doing the activity yeah i I like asking that question because um First of all, it often is something that I've found that athletes who visualize don't actually think about whether or not yeah. they're in the first person or the yeah. third person. I've realized that I see myself in the third person, but yeah. now listening to what you just said, I feel like I've got a new challenge, which is how to bring that <laughs> how to bring that through your own eyes because it's probably I would imagine it's harder. I th- I think I think it is, but I think the benefits sort of a, a worth the, oh, totally. the, the, yeah, the additional I effort i feel like they're slightly different so the the third person so for someone who was running a race and they were imagine picturing themselves running through the finishing line yeah that, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing that will probably work better in the third person but i feel like in the first person there's something about it's a different kind of quality where you're less concerned with the end goal and more focused on the present moment. And I believe that if we focus wholeheartedly to the best of our ability on each and every moment, then the outcome will take care of itself. So we can almost let go of seeing ourselves run through the finishing line. We simply execute to the, to our best ability in each and every single moment through our first person. Right. And the result will be the result. Right. So the the third person is almost the celebratory moment it's almost like a story that we're telling ourselves in yeah our mind. Okay. we're kind of playing out a story and the, the risk there are benefits to it but the risk of it is that we become attached to the storyline and we become attached to the outcome of the story and in doing that we then start to f- focus on the future rather than focusing on the present moment wow yeah that makes a lot of sense and i guess the methods for getting better at looking at it through the first person what are, what are those yeah, so we, I mean, even on the Headspace app, I, I would say visualization is probably about 25, 30% of the content. And I would say... Right. that's the, amazing. I didn't actually realize it was that high. Yeah, the, if, you can, if you can train and familiarize yourself in what it means to visualize within the context of meditation, it then becomes that much easier when you try and apply it to, to everyday life. So I would say to anyone... Start visualization in a very formal way, sort of within a meditation or something like that. Get comfortable with it, get familiar with it, and then you'll find it much easier to to apply to everyday situations like sport and exercise. Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, all right, I want to ask you a couple uh, quick questions, and then we'll let you Go get out it. of here. I could, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> so uh, you're someone who uh, travels a lot. Do yeah. you have any tips for how to 
you know, feel better when you travel? And I mean, how do you improve your recovery on Whoop as an example? Yes. So um, I know there are a lot of different theories around jet lag and everything else. I can only say what works for me personally. Yeah, just what works for you. So to um, maintain my same daily routine wherever I go. So to still, regardless of the hit I take on the sleep or anything else that first day, to get up at five o'clock, to do cardio, to do my meditation, to have the same sort of breakfast that I normally would and everything else, all those things kind of help set me up and settle into that new new time zone. As soon as I arrive in a new place, in a new time zone, I find the best thing I can do is sit to meditate. I feel there is something very grounding. It's almost that in taking that time out, you almost sort of let go of where you've come from. You let go of the time zone. You're not caught up in that, oh, it's 7 o'clock, but it's really 12 o'clock, and you're kind of a storyline in the mind that just kind of gets in the way of everything. I feel like it just grounds you and allows you to let go. So that's one thing that that I'll always do. And then, yeah, nutrition for me is is massive. It's um, trying to maintain kind of those regular, you know, fairly regular meal times and similar kind of diet. I feel like if I'm looking after uh, my mind with meditation, my body with some exercise and, and healthy nutrition, and I'm going to bed at a sensible time, and if I've those those things are in place, then I'm pretty happy wherever I go in the world. What are you doing from a nutrition standpoint? What's your diet look like? So we are in our house, including the, the boys, we're like, like 95. 5% vegan, I'd say, okay. and have been for sort of the last sort of five or six years, um, vegetarian before before that. Um, and that for us, kind of as a as a family, works really well. And and that for me personally has been, been really helpful. Um, about five, six years ago, I, I got cancer. And off the back of that, we did, me and my wife together, we did one year of just raw. Wow. Completely raw and um, vegan raw. And... Um, yeah, it was it was an experience. I imagine I, you also have to get somewhat comfortable with fasting in that process, right? Because there's yeah. going to be a lot of times where you're not going to have access to the exactly. food. Exactly, exactly. Um, fortunately, I had a bit of practice experience yeah. in the past. <laughs> a lot of practice. So um, that was that was fine. But I really enjoy. I feel like now we have found something that works for the whole family. That is an extreme that allows us to to travel and eat out and and to be kind of comfortable wherever we are. What's the lowest recovery you've gotten on Whoop, and and why did that come about? Um, be either it's probably like an eighteen percent, something okay. like that. Um, I don't know if that's especially low. It's in the red. Yeah, um, you were in the I, red. I, I, I know that. Uh, um, <laughs> and it would have probably just been kind of it would have been early into last year where I was still working out what the load was so you know look it was nine sessions of exercise a week with one day off right and i was trying to kind of find the balance of you know how much was was too much and to right. begin with I, t- I did a little bit too much and i found where that where that line was and was able to kind of so it's mostly from overtraining probably yeah, over exactly. stress exactly that's that seems pretty healthy are you someone who drinks alcohol still or no no longer after I'm so rock and roll. Well, um, yeah, I'm out. No, um, <laughs> I don't. Um, we 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 drink. I'll, I'll, when I say we drink, we'll probably have about 
a half a dozen glasses of wine a year. Okay. I mean, we don't right. so we, we don't drink on a regular basis. If we go to a party or something, we'll have yeah. a glass of wine. But beyond that, yeah, I just don't don't really find it that enjoyable. I ask because those are the um, those tend to be the lowest recoveries we ever see. Oh, really? Is people who have a big night of binge drinking. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and then because it's interesting, a hangover looks almost indistinguishable from sickness. Just from a physiological data set, the sleep doesn't look good. Yeah, your your heart rate's really elevated. It's like it's interesting. You can actually see the alcohol trying to come out of your system so because you know someone who normally has a resting heart rate of forty five will fall asleep with a resting heart rate of eighty. Right, and then over the course of the night, maybe it gets to sixty five. Right, but you're still fifty percent elevated. You know. Yeah, and. Uh, and which is actually quite similar to what it looks like if you've got a cold or, um, okay. you know, and so because you may still spend nine hours in bed, yeah. you know, if you're trying to recover from something like that. But the sleep will be so inefficient yeah. and your heart rate variability will be that's totally out of whack. But that's where it's, you know, it's interesting how you think about weighting these different uh, statistics. Yeah. Yeah. yeah alcohol is a massive disruptor to, to sleep. Yeah. I, I still remember the days. What are some things that we can expect for uh, Headspace coming out soon? So I think moving into areas beyond beyond meditation, you know, as I say, we've already gone into sleep. There'll be there'll be other areas that we that we move into. Um international this year is is, is really big for us. So That's there'll, awesome. there'll be half a dozen kind of countries around the world where we'll be be launching in foreign languages. Um And so those are gonna have different voices? Exactly. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> my, it's gonna be hard to scale your voice. My, my Japanese was just yeah. not strong enough. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got we've got other 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 voices, um, and then I think the other other two big areas, um, science. Um, we have a, an entire science research team. Um, we're working towards FDA approval for for Headspace Health, um, and working currently on about sixty five different. Um, trials around around the world so i think the the science kind of thing for us is really important that we have both authenticity and also kind of science that that it's evidence-backed it's not us just saying hey try any old kind of relaxation or meditation it's kind of like these techniques that have been passed down over this many thousands of years they're still around because they work right and we through science we want to show you how they work and and why they work i mean isn't it so awesome to build a business that also you know along with being a good business and profitable or whatever to to be able to hire brilliant people but it's just good for the world you know it's one thing yeah i try to never take for granted this is just how how cool it is to build something that can also have a positive impact yeah, we feel really. I know I speak for Rich as well. We both feel incredibly fortunate. To, yeah, to be working on something that we're passionate about, that delivers on a social impact, but that also allows us to to grow a, a healthy business and hire amazing people from from around the world. Where can people uh, find you online, or if they want to interact at all with with me personally or with Headspace? Well, either. Yeah, I mean, look, if Headspace, you'll find on on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, sure, and, sure. Facebook and everywhere else. And you've written if, a few books as well. So that's yeah, probably you, a good way to get introduced to some of your thoughts. Yeah, so look, I I wrote uh three three books. Um one kind of the Headspace Guide to Me- um Meditation and Mindfulness was the the first one. Um that one I think is is the best place to, to begin. Yeah. Um talks a lot about the the journey that I 
I went on, but I think so much of it applies to how people kind of use the app and how they get introduced to to meditation. Um, there's a second one on on food and a third one on pregnancy, all kind of how you can apply mindfulness to to these different areas or periods of 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 life. But yeah, if you can go to go to headspace.com um is probably a good place to start or you can just download the app from itunes store or, you know app store yeah totally well, well we'll include that in uh in the show notes and andy this has been so much fun congratulations on what you built pleasure thank you well, for being a whoop user yeah pleasure my pleasure thank you all Thanks, right Will. cheers man cheers thank you to andy for coming on the podcast i could have chatted with him for hours And I hope you found the conversation as enlightening as I did. And I'm sure there's more to do with Head to Space in the future. If you're not already a member, you can join the Whoop community now for as low as $18 a month. We'll provide you with 24-7 access to your biometric data, as well as analytics across strain, sleep, recovery, and more. The membership comes with a free Whoop Strap 2.0. And for listening to this podcast, folks, if you enter the code WILLAHMED, that's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, at checkout, we'll give you 30 bucks off. So thank you for listening. Put 30 bucks on my tab, get that free month, and hopefully you enjoy Whoop. For our European customers, the code is WILLAHMEDEU. Just tack E-U on the end of my name, and that'll get you 30 euros off when you join. Check out whoop.com slash the locker for show notes and more including links to relevant topics from our conversation. You can subscribe, rate, and review the Whoop podcast on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever you found this podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can find me online at Will Ahmed and follow at Whoop on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also email thelocker at whoop.com with any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions. For our current members, we've got a lot of new gear in the Whoop store. I suggest you check that out. It includes 6, 12, and 18-month gift cards, help you save over time. We've got new bands, new colors, new textures. Visit whoop.com for more. Thank you again for listening to the Whoop podcast. We'll see you next week.